0: This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad Original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves this May and is available for pre-order right now. My guest today, geopolitical strategist, Peter. Zihan. He is the author of these books right here, Disunited Nations, Accidental Superpower, Absent Superpower, and his most recent, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And now, without further ado, Peter Zihan. All right, Peter, how's it going?
1: Hey, doing all right. How about yourself, Jack? Oh,
0: good to see you. Man, I'm sure you have like been months extremely busy. You're always extremely busy, but I can only imagine that this last year (laughs) since Ukraine, and then you got on on. Rogan last month, and I can only imagine how busy uh, you are across the board. So thanks for taking time to sit down. It's
1: been pretty much nonstop since I saw you last. I bet.
0: I bet. Oh, man. Well, where do you even start? I mean, I wish everybody would read all of your books, by the way. I have them all Me right too. here. I just had <laughs> get them in hardcover and get them in the trade right here. This is my original. Uh, this is what started it all right here. I read this on the way to Africa back in 2016, and uh, this really informed True Believer, my second novel. So the accidental superpower right here, and you've been going strong ever since. Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Wild world, what? Uh, so what's uh, what's been going on? What's the what? Is, what have you been asked to do more than anything else over the past year <laughs> since Ukraine? Is it been all Ukraine, or is it Ukraine-China? Is it Ukraine-China-Russia? Or are there some other things out there that people need to be aware of as well that they're asking you to, to talk about or think about. Uh, well,
1: my career to this point has been convincing people that demographics and geopolitics matter, and that generates a series of forecasts and. Until the Ukraine war happened, I don't think a whole lot of my clients really believed any of it. Hmm. They just found me a uh, an interesting thought leader, somebody who could come up with a new framework, contingency planning, soundboarding that sort of stuff. Well, since the Ukraine war, they're like, "Holy crap, this is actually all going down." We got to have him back. So. Last year was by far the busiest year I've ever had, and now, of course, it's Ukraine and its economic after effects. And now that people have kind of admitted to themselves that China is in terminal decline, the conversation has now shifted to, you know, the hows and the where's and the what's. So it's, yeah, it's been, I'm a busy, busy boy.
0: I bet. I bet. Well, but before we kick off all that stuff, what is up with the spy balloon? I mean, it was in the news recently. What is going on there? We have one that was like a, not maybe a Chinese spy balloon, but it was a little uh, hobby group that sent something up perhaps that got shot mm-hmm. down and one that was a Chinese balloon that went across the whole country. And then maybe another one possibly that got shot down before, but what's, uh, what's the deal with those? Are those always been coming over or what, or is that something that's brand new?
1: No, it's relatively new. Now, there are balloons all over the place for weather, for science, for whatever else. Uh, the, the balloon in question that the U.S. shot down over the Carolina seabed uh, was definitely a spy balloon. So let me just kind of dial back and give you an idea of how this happened on the Chinese side, because it really is athenite. So Sherman Xi has now consolidated more power unto his person than any human in history. And as part of that purge, he has removed everyone from any position of decision-making within the Chinese system who is competent. Uh, and so it really is a one-man show. I mean, we, we can look at Russia and talk about, he really only has half a dozen advisors anymore. And we can talk about Obama and how he locked himself in the White House, but G has no one. Uh, no one will bring him any information because they don't know how he will re- react. Uh, and he often reacts violently. Mm. And that's, you know, shooting the messenger is not good for information flow. Uh, In this sort of environment, China has made a series of catastrophic mistakes over the course of the last couple of years. Wolf warrior diplomacy destroyed his relations with most of the world. Uh, because now people, they're, they're, they're literally proud of their genocides in China now. And that does not resonate with anyone. We've got relations with the United States, which are their security guarantor for their trade and their primary consumer base. And the country that allows them to import all their food and their energy that's just cheesed off at them completely. And they're even ruining relations with the Europeans over the Ukraine war. So one way or another, it has finally percolated up to G of just how deep in the shit they really are. So he sends out these peace feelers saying that, okay, we won't be quite so crazy. Uh, And Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, was on his way to the airport to get on a plane to come to China. But because there's no information exchange within the Chinese system at all, some dumbass in their intelligence operation said, hey, hey, I got an idea. Because we're in a cult of personality and the great leader hates all things the United States, I am going to float a 350-foot-across balloon over the United States that you don't even need binoculars to see. And I'm going to dangle a chunk of apparatus. It's as big as an Embraer jet. Now, if you've ever been to a regional airport, you know those well. They're the ones with two seats on one side and one on the other. Okay, They're very, very small. They're very, very cramped unless you're dangling it from a balloon. Okay, And then it's going to spend seven days going across the United States. We're not going to get any intelligence from this. Because the thing is, I'm going to send it over, the missile bases. I don't know if you knew this, but unless you're actually launching the nukes, the missile silos are closed. And so there's no information that could be gathered uh, from a balloon that you couldn't get from a satellite. Even better, the Americans are going to have a U-2 jet above it and a spy helicopter below it all seven days with whisper sensors recording every bit of transmission it does, looking at what it does, learning the architecture, It will be the intelligence coup of the decade for the Americans. And at the end of the day, they're going to shoot it down and get the hardware, too. So they're going to get the codes and the sequencing and the routing information, all of it. It is arguably the dumbest thing that I have seen any country do in the last 20 years. And the Chinese government for the most part didn't even know what was happening. Their defense department didn't know, their their, their foreign ministry didn't know. It's pretty obvious from the calls that Xi didn't know. It was just some idiot in the intelligence services. That is the degree of decision-making breakdown we are seeing in China today. That someone would think that this is a good idea and then not be able to stop because the information exchange up and down the system is now so destroyed that you can't even have a basic conversation. Gee,
0: do you think that person, it's off with their head right now? That, uh, oh, I'm sure.
1: I, if they're not dead already, they wish they were.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. How many people are around, Gee, Is it uh the There's
1: one? no one. There's, There's no zero. One.
0: So who comes? Who has to knock yeah. on that door and go in and be like, uh, sir, we just lost a, uh, a spy balloon over? Yeah, oh, exactly. Like, who's that guy? Did you
1: want to be that guy? Yeah,
0: yeah. I don't know. You definitely don't want to be the messenger. Too. No. <laughs> yeah. God, is, it, is there something similar to the what is it, the Russian Security Council, where they have the uh, semi newly appointed deputy chairman um, and then the chairman, which is the president of Russia, and then heads of intelligence agencies. And then it kind of filters down to some regional district representatives and other people. There, in the there is. is there the problem like
1: is she spent his first five years purging the country of all of his political opponents. And then he spent his next five years purging the country of all theoretical opponents, which meant anyone who could think. Mm. There's nobody left. So, yes, those institutions do exist to a degree, but they're either staffed by people who are utterly incompetent or patsies who got their job because of their personal loyalty. Uh, Even in Russia, which is not what we would call an information-free society, there are still a handful of people at the top that will talk to Putin and tell him uncomfortable truths. Now, three of them Mm. are competent. Three of them are not. So he is getting set a steady Spread of I'm sorry a steady stream of misinformation and propaganda, but there are three people who will tell them the truth. She has nothing like that.
0: Oh, interesting. because we, we think of things from our perspective. We think of okay, what are our uh, top uh, geopolitical uh, issues of the day? Is it uh, is it China? Is it Russia? Energy? Whatever it might be for us, uh, do they have a list like that? Do you think that they they look at and they're thinking like okay, we have Taiwan, we have maybe some what uh, chips and semiconductor type. Uh, infra- infrastructure out there that uh, we might want that might help us if we had it um, we have what do we have as far as mining goes and are they look at those sorts of things uh, or what, i'm, what I'm are, sure are that they, they used to
1: yeah uh, but uh, so if you want to go back a little bit uh, if you remember Deng Xiaoping, he was the, the second generation leader, the guy after Mao. Yeah. He was probably the best leader that China has ever had because he realized what the strengths and the weaknesses of the Chinese system were. And he worked assiduously uh, internationally to address the, the weaknesses and leverage the strengths. So he is the guy who met with Nixon and was brought into the American World War, post-World War II Cold War uh, international globalization structures. And that set the stage for the industrial expansion that, to create the China that we now know. Uh, and he wanted to make sure that they never had a repeat of Mao. So he personally selected not just his successor, but the following guy, too. And that's Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. And between the two of them, they ruled China for 20 years. And that has been the golden age of China. But he knew that he was not smart enough to figure out who should run the country 30 years on. Mm-hmm. And so he left it to those two factions to come up with a compromise candidate and the compromise candidate was Xi Jinping. Unfortunately for Zhang and Hu, uh, Xi spent his first five years outmaneuvering them and gutting both factions, and then the second five-year period getting rid of anyone who might theoretically form a new faction. And so if you remember when he crowned himself president for life about a year ago, Hu Jintao was up on the One of the in one of the desks on stage when it all went on and they publicly escorted him out to underscore to the country just how there was no opposing power center anywhere, uh, even theoretically in China anymore. It's just Xi. Jeez,
0: man! And what is in one child, one child policy? When did that come into effect? And what are they? Did they not project forward off what that was gonna gonna do to them, or were they just looking at a ten year plan, a twenty year plan, and now they're at the 40, 50 year side of this? And what's <laughs> what's what's going on there?
1: Yeah, so the one child policy was adopted about forty years ago, and Mao was concerned that this up and coming post korea post uh, japan occupation generation was going to expand so quickly that it was going to literally eat the country alive mm. and it has contributed now to the terminal demographic decline that china is in uh but i don't think it's quite accurate maybe a little unfair to put all of the fault on the one child policy it was in time proven to be a bad policy i'm not disputing that but uh when you move off the farm and into the town you go from kids being free labor and so you have as many as you can put up with plus one, because that's how you find out it's too many, mm. to kids being a luxury good and just the source of migraines. So in the <laughs> case get of China, you know, if you go back just to the 1950s, they were having seven and eight kids per woman. Now in the cities, it's less than one. Uh, and obviously the one-child policy played a role in that, but just the urbanization process overall greatly depresses birth rates. And now we've got China, which is the fastest urbanizing country in history, did it in 40 years. And on top of that, they've got the one-child policy. So you put those two together and the result is the death of the country. We're we're near the end.
0: Jeez, what steps are they taking to to
1: mitigate any of that? Or are they just blindly going forward? Uh, No, they're not being blind about it. This is one of the last things that was decided before Xi ushered the last competent people out of the room. I I like the product placement there. Uh.
0: (laughs) There it is. It's back. Is it in? (laughs) (laughs) End of the world is just the beginning. So it's been out for a year. So I want to talk to you about that too. Uh, The changes that have happened over the last. Oh, I think you see that. There it is. Look at that. Everybody (laughs) should read this book for
1: sure. So the, the, the Chinese went to a two China policy and then a three child policy. And then they did away with it all, uh, and there's now no restrictions. And in fact, the Population Management Bureau, I can't remember the name of it, that's responsible for enforcing population controls, is now basically a neonatalist arm of the government who helps people have kids and Try, helps them to try to find childcare and things like that. So, you know, they, from a policy point of view, they've done more or less what they can yeah. without a complete upheaval, but it's too late. Too many people are living in condos and so their birth rate is going down, 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 down. And then we had three years of COVID. And one of the many, many, many outcomes of COVID is when you're not sure of your economic future, you're less willing to have a kid. And the the specific Chinese flavor of that is when you can't see your mistress every week, which is apparently really popular. <laughs> (laughs) Your marriage falls apart. Oh, so we've had this (laughs) marital advice. I wasn't expecting that.
0: So some, yeah, I
1: know. (laughs) So apparently, we've had this collapse in uh, marriage rates in China during COVID, and then of course three years of lower birth rates. So from 2018 until the last data we have in 2021, the birth rate dropped by like 40 percent even though they were liberalizing the laws on having kids at the same time. So it's just, we're, we're so far past the point of no return now. Jeez.
0: And so what does Taiwan give them if they were to uh, re-annex, retake? Nothing. That really?
1: Yeah. So China, about the only advantage would be a mild strategic advantage because Taiwan is part of the first island chain. And those those line of barrier islands that are populated that separate China from the rest of the world. And China's never been able to penetrate through that in a sustained way, certainly not in a corporate manner. Um, But they don't get semiconductors because the Chinese can't operate their own semiconductors. So if they suddenly found themselves in possession of the world's most advanced system, they wouldn't know what to do with it. It would be like a spaceship landing in the United States. And, you know, we'd we'd give it a good try, but we wouldn't have any idea what we're doing. Um, It would lead to a military conflict that they couldn't win. Uh, Remember, the Chinese Navy, while it has a lot of vessels under combat conditions, most over 80 percent can only sail about 400 miles from shore. Mm -hmm. And their oil comes from 5,000 miles away. So someone, Japan, the United States, Australia, Taiwan, Vietnam, India, someone will put two destroyers in the Indian Ocean Basin and cut the energy line. And that is literally all he wrote. Also remember that China is the world's largest importer of food. And they import the vast majority of the inputs that allow them to grow their own. Mm. So you'd be looking at a deindustrialization collapse that would trigger a famine in a matter of months. Uh, and as of four years ago, the Chinese government realized that there's an open question now with Xi purging the system so much of whether or not he actually buys into the propaganda. We just don't know. One of the beautiful, beautiful things of the Ukraine war is the United States has demonstrated that it's listening in to every meeting and every phone call (laughs) and reading every email and every blog that Putin touches. You can't do that with Xi because he doesn't speak with anyone. Mm -hmm. There's no one to hack. So we just don't know. Oh, man, he's gone He's gone old school.
0: What does it do to us yeah. if there's a uh, prolonged conflict over Taiwan? Does it do something to our semiconductor industry, like maybe make it, uh, revitalize sure. it here? Or are we looking at that uh, anyway? Yes,
1: yes and no. So semiconductors are a really, really messy space. Um, you've got... F- three main types you've got your 10 nanometer and smaller those are your super advanced ones those are used in most ai programs so that would include things like satellites that would include things like um ai i'm sorry um self-driving at the bottom you've got your 90 nanometers and bigger and these are almost analog chips they can only do like one or two things so like the the chip that's in your smart bulbs uh, would be one of those. And then in, in the middle, 90 to 10, everything else, that's the vast bulk of the market. Uh, and that's everything from aerospace to automotive to power regulation. The really, really good stuff, the top 10% requires a constellation of almost everyone, 13 different countries. So you're getting lenses from the Germans, light sources from the Californians, laser etching systems from the Dutch, the wafer fabrication comes from the Japanese. Americans do the design, and they're manufactured in primarily Taiwan into a lesser degree Korea. And if a single country falls out of that constellation, none of it works wow. because there is no backup for any of it. Okay. So if we do have a war in Taiwan that is meaningful in any way, we lose the good chips, and that means AI goes into a winter for at least a decade. Dang. That's wild. On the low end, the 90 and bigger, the dumb chips... Yeah those are almost exclusively China. Okay. So when China goes, no matter how China goes, we lose the internet of things and everything that comes from that. Everything in the middle is actually significantly more durable. The chips aren't as advanced. Their production comes from different places. There's some in Europe, there's some in Japan, there's some in in South Korea. There's a lot in the United States. In fact, by value, the United States more produce, Yeah, words. By value, the United States produces more chips than the rest of the world put together. Those were that okay. 10 nanometer right. and higher. Those are really expensive chips, but there's just not a lot of them. Mm. And the 90 nanometer and below, there's a lot of them, but they're just not very expensive. So everything in the middle for your cars, for your planes and so on, we're probably okay with a China meltdown or even a Taiwanese capture or destruction. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean it's immune to all the shocks that are going on out there. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot, especially with the Ukraine war, I'm concerned about, mm-hmm. but we're not really worried about the infrastructure of the industrial plant. And you know, in this world, that's, that's about as good as the news gets.
0: Jeez, I know uh, the, 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 the title of your book wouldn't suggest this, but you are actually hopeful about the future yeah. when it comes to the United States in particular.
1: Uh, we're going to be really good. I mean, we're pretty good now. We're already the world's largest economy, highest standard of living, uh, energy secure, food secure, blah, 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 blah. Ten years from now, once we've built out the industrial plant to replace a lot of these places like China that are falling away, Uh, uh, we're also going to have lower costs of production and more secure production and higher employment. And the employment here will be fueling the factories that are selling the products to the people who are consuming here and will be broadly immune to international shocks. This, This is a good story. Yeah. But the path from here to there, yeah, there are a lot of bumps and it is not
0: great. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stay in the mountains, I think. Uh, and, uh, and, I hear yeah. you. And watch it. And you're in the mountains too, I know. You're uh, at least in a mountain state, you know. Um, but Not you know- nearly as remote as you,
1: though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Today I want to talk about Protect.com. That is P R O T E K T. Dot com started by my buddy Nick Norris from the SEAL teams who was recently on the podcast. He's all about health and wellness and living that best life. So what we have here, hydration, immunity, energy, rest, liquid packs. Because we all want to feel our best, we dream of waking up with plenty of energy to excel at our work, our personal lives, and have a great workout every single day. But the reality is Very few of us do that. That's why Protect was started. And you can grab a convenient pack right here. This is energy. So this has been boosting me through my latest novel. And look at that. It's a liquid pack right there. You just, bam, add it to a glass, add a little water, and you are good to go. So hydration... Love the hydration and the immunity and the clarity, which I'm going to take as soon as this podcast is over and I get back to writing. So all of that plus the rest. How important is that rest right here? Take that an hour and a half before bed for some great sleep. And for hydration right here, 30 minutes after you wake up and right before your workout. So swap that daily energy drink, for the energy, try that hydration, that immunity, that rest. And they also have products like this, Reef Safe Sunscreen, SPF 50 Protect, right there. And right now, you can get 25% off. Go to protect.com, that dot com slash Danger Close for 25% off. Go check them out. You know, I want to take you back a little bit, not to the beginning, but to the beginning of a lot of where this uh, post-World War II uh, uh, geopolitical framework was created uh, in the summer of 1944. Uh, You talk about it in your your books, a lot of people just don't get this in school, don't get this from parents, don't know what it really the Breton Accords was unless they read your book or if they type it into uh, a search engine, you know, things will, will pop up. But it's fascinating in that we changed, we shit, there was such a paradigm shift out of uh, uh, what New Hampshire... 1944 and i can only imagine Damn, new, what it would have been new like. new
1: hampshire of all yeah, places of all right
0: places now. <laughs> and bringing all those people from all corners of the world imagine that's a little bit of a, a hit to the to the ego having to come here to this essentially <laughs> new country united states and uh and, and sit down and not grovel but kind of wonder what's going to come out of this and then getting yeah, almost the exact season
1: ski resort
0: <laughs> <literally>. <laughs> and then getting the opposite probably of what a lot of them thought. So can you take us back to that summer and talk a little bit about where all this uh, kind of started and why?
1: Sure. So let's let's deal with it first from the strategic point of view, and then we can deal with it from the economic point of view. So uh, one of the things that the Europeans refused to admit is after the American Civil War with Reconstruction, while the United States was kind of off by its own, it was digesting a continent and over the course of Reconstruction and knitting the country back together and conquering the West, we became not just the largest economy in the world. We were that before the Civil War. We became a larger economy than the British Empire, the French Empire, and the German Empire combined. Mm. And so when World War II came around, if you're if you're willing to like, you know, step back and like ignore the emotion and just look at the numbers, there was no way. That the war was going to win in any way other than american domination Mm -hmm. and so once we got to 1944 and it was clear that the soviets had broken the back of the germans in the east and the normandy and the italian invasions were going to be successful uh everyone realized it was time to prepare for what's next and for most of the europeans they thought what's next was going to be an american empire that occupied western europe And they were in the process of making their peace with that because they realized they didn't have much of an option. Because if you were like Dane or Dutch, uh, you were were in exile. And so the deals that you cut when the Americans invited you to discuss the post-war system were going to determine the nature of your occupation. And in the opening speech, the United States made it very clear that was not what was up we were going to create a fundamentally different system with the goal of making global war unthinkable. So in the war, in the world before World War II, it was imperial. Everyone had their own navy, everyone patrolled their own supply lines, everybody guarded them jealously, and everybody fought over the supply lines and the market access and the colonies. The American vision for the post-war environment would be that the U.S., which had a huge Navy at that time would patrol the global oceans for everyone so that anyone could go anywhere at any time and access any commodity and trade with any partner. And the real kicker was that the Americans would open their market first because there wasn't a European market in the, in the, in the aftermath Mm -hmm. of the war. Uh, All you had to do was let us write your security policies because we saw the world differently. It wasn't about economics for us. It was about security. We saw the Stalinesque Soviet war machine rampaging through the east. We were getting reports uh, from our intelligence that what the Soviets were doing in Ukraine and e- eventually in Poland was worse than what the Nazis had done in many ways, which was you know mind-boggling. And we're, we realized that there was no way that we operating from a different continent could fight that unless we had literally millions of bodies between us and the Red Army. And since the Europeans were coming out of the most destructive war in human history, they were in no position to do anything unless they could be properly incentivized. So the whole idea of globalization from the American point of view was to give the entire world an economic reason to stand up to Stalin. And it worked because it used to be pre, pre pre-industrial or pre pre pre-World War II. If you had food and oil and coal and iron ore, you could industrialize. And you could make something of yourself and maybe expand. But if you were missing even one of those things, you weren't just backwards. You weren't just a loser. You were probably a colony. Well, globalization meant you didn't need all four. You just needed one. And you could trade for the others under American protection. And that literally created the world that we knew. From the American point of view, we think of this as containment. And it was. From the rest of the world's point of view, it was everyone getting on the road to civilization more or less at the same time. From different starting points, going at different speeds, but for the first time in history, we were all industrializing and that changed everything. And that creates the environment that we're in today.
0: And uh, the Soviets were at uh, Brenton Woods, right? Didn't they have representatives? there,
1: they were invited. But when it became clear that it wasn't about Stalinist central control, uh, their delegation uh, broke down and left fairly shortly thereafter. Okay. Uh, a, a lot of the um, what we consider the Central European countries were there mm. and did sign, but then they became Soviet bloc satellites and obviously didn't participate in the deals that happened on the backside.
0: Jeez, And do you think because uh, most of the world, I guess everyone that was there um, was who had studied their history uh, and uh, it was kind of like in their DNA to think, oh, okay, we've been conquered again. Okay, now what happens? Okay, tariffs over here. Okay, somebody occupies here. Uh, and they, were they kind of pre-programmed going in uh, for, a, for a different outcome? And then all of a sudden oh, yeah. the United States says, hey, we're going to take care of uh, the security of the globe, essentially allow you to trade freely. It won't cost you a dime. We got it. Um, and, uh, and our markets are,
1: are open to you. Um, Yeah, but just just think about the time difference between now and then. So, you know, we are roughly 80 years from World War II now, roughly 70 years from the Korean War. Think about what was 70 and 80 years before World War II. You had all of the Franco-German wars. You had the rise of Imperial Germany. And so people knew in their bones that when a large country captured another country, it was theirs. Yeah. And this went a very different direction.
0: If you're sitting there, one of these delegates, do you think they had a a heads up ahead of time? Are they just sitting there kind of thinking here it comes. Here's the next one. All right. No, uh, give it they to didn't us. because
1: the, the Brits came in with a plan for taking over the world again that the Americans were going to pay for. Oh, no kidding. So everyone had their preconceived notions that the Brits were just, you know, wacko on that point. But, you know, uh, everyone's parents a little odd when they get older.
0: Interesting.
1: <laughs> uh, but, but for everybody else, yeah, the, the question was, you know, what are the American terms going to be? Because, you know, why would they, why, 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 why? would they bring us <laughs> to a off-season ski resort <laughs> in, New in the middle of nowhere if it wasn't just to grind into us just how little right. maneuvering to show we us. Have. We
0: make we're making them come here to New Hampshire, the ski resort, mm-hmm. and now we're going to yeah. tell you the new world order. And uh, it's like it
1: apparently there's this great story I've read of it, apparently the the Dutch rep went down to the bar the night before the talks and discovered there was no booze there because it was in the off season. And he was just like, "What the hell? What's our future going to be?" <laughs>
0: Oh, I want to, I'm sure they've rectified that. Uh, what was our, rep- oh, yeah. who's our guy there? Was it white? Is that his last name? What was the guy that, uh, uh,
1: yes, white was one of the main neg- negotiators.
0: And, and uh, who were the people outside of uh, Brenton Woods beforehand that, uh, that talked about mm-hmm. all this, figured all this out. And then people went down to present it, obviously, but I'm curious if along the way in World War II, like 1942, we started realizing this and talking about it or after D-Day and then.
1: We oh, gotcha. Inward. OK, and no, now we're like, okay, uh, now we, now be, we really be need before to start 1942. I don't think this was even a whisper in anyone's ear. Yeah. Uh, the Americans are not known for long term <laughs> plans. Uh, I, I think that the real shift happened after Stalingrad, because mm. that was when we realized just how potent the Soviets were ultimately going to be. Uh, one of the things with the Ukraine war now is we're discovering and, you know, everyone discovered this in World War II and in World War One, and in every war the Russians have ever been in. Year one is a disaster. And then in year two, the Russians mobilize and start throwing bodies at the problem. And by the time we got to Stalingrad, there were a lot of bodies lot being of bodies. thrown. And in the assault going both east and especially west into Germany, uh, the, the Russians were regularly suffering four-to-one casualty ratios, but they just kept coming. Uh, and when we realized that that was going to be the nature of the fight, mm-hmm. uh, post-Germany, uh, w- the only way you stop the bodies in that number is with even more bodies. And since there were as many Soviets as there were Europeans, we mm-hmm. needed everyone. Jeez.
0: Is that part of the, uh, the calculus for Ukraine now that this is the year where we throw bodies at it? type of a thing? Uh,
1: well, yeah, absolutely. So, um, it's, it's Russia. So data, who knows, um, but our best guess is that by the time we get to May, uh, the Ukrainians will have brought in 60,000 fresh troops that have trained with NATO with new gear that will be make it the, the toughest fighting force in, in Europe, aside from the United States itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and arguably, considering our force posture in Europe, maybe even tougher, but the Russians will have another half a million men in theater. And so you're talking about six to seven hundred thousand Russians on the front compared to the one hundred thousand that they started with. So this is this is we're about to start the second chapter. This is a fundamentally different conflict now.
0: And they look at it. They look at the bodies and that's just part of their their planning. They're not looking at technology yeah. and how to how to mitigate risk to force and that sort of a thing. They're just looking at like they have yeah. previously. Uh, they, they go back in their history and say, oh, we just throw another five hundred thousand people at this. Um, this is a numbers. Game.
1: Yeah, it's, there, there's pros and cons if you're not Russian. I mean, with the, if you're Russian, the, the numbers are pretty obvious. Uh, I mean, the, the cons is you know that that's that's a lot of people, and uh, Ukraine can only win this if it's a battle of movement where they can inflict eight to one casualty ratios. And we've had a muddy winter; it hasn't gotten cold enough to freeze the ground. They mm-hmm. haven't been able to move it with their tanks at all, and so they've been stuck in these head-to-head battles in places like Bakhmut, uh, where they're suffering casualties they can't afford. And in a battle where the Ukrainians kill three times as many Russians as they lose, that's that's a battle the Ukrainians lost. Mm-hmm. They need to get this up to at least eight to one to have a chance. On the other side, uh, by the end of this year, the Russians will have committed at least 100,000 men. We're already approaching 200,000 casualties, which probably means approaching 200,000 deaths because Russian battlefield triage and medical is atrocious. Um, a million men have fled. There are 8 million men in their 20s in Russia. So 1 million is gone, not coming back. The other million is getting chopped up. That still leaves them 6 million to go, but this is Russia's last generation. Mm-hmm. So even if the Russians do manage to overwhelm Ukraine this year and start and start what will turn into the greatest genocide uh, since World War II... Um, this is going to take a lot of men, and this is the last conventional war that the Russians will be capable of fighting.
0: You talk about that in here, which was uh, 2014. Mm-hmm. Is that when you when this came out? 20.
1: It uh, sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. 2014.
0: I read it in 2016, but you essentially mm-hmm. have a, a few paragraphs in here that talk about talks about the exact not just what was going to happen, but the exact year that it was going to happen yeah. by. I mean, it, it's absolutely incredible. When this started going down, I like, I read this somewhere before because I used it in a novel. And then I went back to this book. I'm like, Oh my goodness. And not only does he say, cause <laughs> a lot of people can say, Hey, it's going to happen. And then throw it out there. And when it does, they say, Oh, look, I was brilliant. Uh, and these things are very obvious, but you put it the exact date on it. You said it will happen by this date because of X, Y, and Z. And sure enough, it exactly
1: happened that way, like it was,
0: with a month—not even a month to spare. Essentially, it's uh, it's it's quite remarkable. I
1: mean, <laughs> well, thank you very much. And not to toot my own horn, although you know, too toot, toot. Um, that wasn't the only war that I think is going to happen. Uh, the second book is about the three big conflicts of the era that we're in now, and the Ukraine war is just the first one. We've got we've got two more brewing—one in the Middle East between the the Persians and the Saudis—and another one uh, in the East. Uh, eastern rim of Asia, most likely involving the Chinese and the Japanese. Whether it's because of the Japanese throwing a hail mary, or I'm sorry. Whether it's because of the Chinese throwing a hail mary, or the the war that follows the Chinese disintegration. Uh, you know, there's going to be a slug match out there.
0: Oh man! Well, before we get to that one, let's talk about the uh, the Middle East. Then what's uh, what's happening? What's happening there? What's 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 on the horizon?
1: Well, I don't know if you'd heard this, but the Americans are sick of it. Uh, so we've left. Uh, we, We can all have conversations about whether we could have left more cleanly, and that's legitimate, but oh my god, we're out. And if we hadn't been out, then what's going on in Ukraine would be much more difficult, if not impossible. Uh, and we would not have the political and military bandwidth to do other things.
0: I had that reaction there because you inspired a part of my next novel that's coming out here in May. Only <laughs> the Dead, and I was a little nervous about bringing a couple of these points up because I, it's, it's turned in and I can't go back and fix it now. If you tell me I'm totally wrong, so when you say something that I, that it's kind of on on point, I'm like,
1: yes, awesome. I cannot wait to see
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> and You're in the acknowledgments, of course, because all of this, uh, I mean, informs the, the the writing of my novels, of course. But. Oh. I uh, this, so. It's just it's all just so brilliant um, and, and fascinating. Um, but uh, but anyway, sorry. So I, I have that that point, it, that, that exact point in there. So I got excited for a second. But uh, cool. yeah, so. yeah,
1: you know, with the American withdrawal, you know, Biden got a lot of crap. But, you know, Trump didn't want to pull out because he didn't want to deal with the day of the pullout. Same with Obama. Uh, so this this is a scab that we needed to rip off. And we can argue about how if could we have done it better? And maybe. But we always knew the Afghan government was going to collapse shortly after we left. Now, we didn't think it was going to be the second after we left. We thought they might last a year. Mm-hmm. No one thought it was going to last, two. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So Middle East, what's, what's our next war? What's yeah. going to
0: pull us back in here?
1: So I don't think it's going to pull us back in. I mean, the TBD, but... Uh, the pullout is pretty much complete. We've got a couple hundred special forces running around Syria. Their time is limited. And as soon as they're gone, there is no reason to consider that uh, the CENTCOM base in Gutter needs to be there anymore because it's not doing anything. It, it should be back in the United States. Uh, the last big thing that they did was do security briefs for the World Cup. And I'm sorry, that is not worthy of CENTCOM's <laughs> attention. Uh so we don't even have carriers that are in the Gulf regular anymore because we are now completely energy independent again, uh, and we are the world's largest exporter of refined products. So the energy argument for being involved is no longer there. Hmm. Uh, in this sort of environment, the Iranians have done wonders at leveraging the American position to rile up sectarian groups throughout the region to overthrow governments and gen- cause general chaos. That has generated a, an ongoing backlash with the Saudis now in the fray because they realize the Americans aren't going to fight their wars for them. But whereas the Iranians ultimately want to use these minority groups to get control, the Saudis don't care about what it looks like so long as the Iranians lose. So they have been willing to use terror groups and militant groups to just burn down everything to its foundation. You get two groups, one that wants to overthrow the majority, and then one that Kant itself as the representative to the majority just wants to destroy everything. This is going to end badly. Uh, The two scenarios to consider, uh, number one is a straight-up slugfest between the two powers that put half of all maritime transported oil in the crosshairs in between them. Mm. That'd be bad. Option two is the two of them basically engage in rising proxy conflicts that destroy every country in Mesopotamia, Mm. uh, most notably Iraq. No matter how that goes down, uh, you, you get a big hit to energy supplies, and the country that is at the very end of the energy kick chain is China, and they're the ones who will have to suck up the majority of the loss.
0: Yeah, okay, are they, are they getting any uh, uh, oil and gas from Russia?
1: They China? are. Uh, the problem with oil, well, the problem with natural gas is you can't redirect it at all. You have to have specialized shipment systems, and if the pipes aren't there, it just goes offline, and that is the case that we're seeing with natural gas. Oil is a little bit more flexible because mm-hmm. it's a liquid. Um, but the time it would take to build infrastructure from the Western Siberian fields that used to supply the Europeans okay. to the coast of China, you know, that, that's a 15-20-year project that would cost over a hundred billion dollars. Wow. We're talking China, we're talking Russia. These are countries not intimidated by the concept of scale, but you don't do that fast. Yeah. So what we're seeing is tankers taking crude from the Baltic and the Black Sea ports. Going west at some point, either in the Atlantic or the Mediterranean, uh, taking these small shuttle tankers and reloading them onto super tankers, and then sailing around Africa and India and Vietnam to get to China. And the volume that is going that way is about a million, maybe a million and a half barrels a day, with another roughly million going to India. Okay. A uh, couple problems here. Number one is insurance, and you know, don't get bored. This will be quick <laughs> and it's interesting. <laughs> Uh, every reinsurance company in the world has said they will no longer cover any Russian cargo. So the only companies that will insure it are state companies from India and China who have never insured anything before. And so the first time we have an incident where we have an insurance payout, it's going to go directly into international arbitration and that will take years. And at that point, uh, no one will want to get an Indian or Chinese insurance policy anymore. Uh, Russian pressure will build up in the pipes from the export point all the way back to the fields, mm. and most of this crude comes from the permafrost. And if for whatever reason the pressure backs up to the well, the well uh, will seal shut because the oil will coagulate into a gel, and the water that comes up as a byproduct will freeze into water, and the water, when water freezes into ice, it, it expands and it pops the wells from the inside. Okay. And, and that's all she wrote, and we lose 3-4 million barrels a day of Russian crude. So not only are the Chinese now getting oil from twice as far away as they normally did, which was already the most risky energy transport route in the, in, in in history. Uh, they're now getting it from a supply system that is eminently unstable, and it is going to break down sooner or later. And they're still picking a fight with the United States, which controls the security of this route. So... It doesn't matter really at this point, which piece of the system breaks. The Chinese are the ones that lose all of it. Jeez.
0: And then uh, if you throw Japan, China into the mix and China's Hail Mary, what does that look like?
1: Uh, When I say Hail Mary, it's not that I think they can win. But one of the things to remember about the Ukraine war is that the Russians get what they're after, which is a more securable uh, exterior crustal defense. They actually do buy them buy themselves some more time. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere that the Chinese can conquer that buys them time. So the only reason that the Chinese would launch a war uh, is to try to preemptively remove Japan and Ukraine and uh Japan and Taiwan from the equation, maybe Vietnam too. Or if they're like me and they believe that they're facing economic and agricultural and financial and political and demographic breakdown, and they know that the end is nigh anyway. Mm picking the time and the place of the fight so that at home you can write the narrative of the national defeat, that might be enough for the CCP to retain control as the country collapses, wow. maybe. So, you know, basically fight a war. And for the low, low price of 500 million dead countrymen, you're still in charge. Uh,
0: what surprised you over the last year? Um, Ukraine. Yeah, it surprised you. There's something yeah. that surprised you that it went. What What surprised you about it?
1: that they're still there. I mean, I, I was probably among the most optimistic people for the Ukrainians uh, because they have done a lot in the last eight years since the Donbass War to build up a military and establish a sense of identity and politically unify the country. They've made some real gains. But I don't even, even I didn't think they were going to last a year, much less all of a sudden. It's I don't want to call it a peer conflict. It's not. But, to, you know, be in the same class. Uh, this should not have happened. The Ukrainians have overperformed by every possible measure. The Europeans have stepped up to the plate in a way that I didn't think they were capable of. Mm. The Americans have joined in. And I thought with European feckleness um, and general disinterest from Obama and Trump and Biden that we wouldn't get involved. And then, of course, most of all, the Russians have just proven to plumb the depths uh, and the frontiers of incompetence in every possible military field. Uh, It took that combination of things for Ukraine to still be in the game. I hope it continues, Um, but this is still Russia's war to lose. And what about a negotiated settlement? What does that look
0: like? It seems like there could have been something, Donbass region, take that kind of earlier. There have been eight. Yeah. Eight opportunities?
1: No, there there have been eight negotiated settlements with the Russians, and they just wait a few months to a year or two, and then they push on. It gives the Russians times to consolidate and move on. Remember that... When when the Soviet system existed, they controlled every one of the access points to the Eurasian Plain where the the Russian heartlands are. It was the most secure that the Russians had ever been. They had spent 350 years building that exterior Mm. position, and they finally got it in 1945. Uh, 1992, they lost all but one of those access points. And everything that Moscow has done, not just Putin, everything that Moscow has done since 1992 has been about rebuilding that crustal defense. So this is the Karabakh War settlements. This is the Georgia War, the Abkhaz War, the the Kazakh Intervention, the Donbas War, the Crimea War. All of these are part of the same chapter of Russian history. And so if there was a negotiated settlement, they would grab the territory, they would reinforce it, they would consolidate it. And then as soon as they felt they were ready, they would launch another conflict, just like they did the last eight times.
0: Hmm. This one seems to be a little... A little different for them. Um,
1: yes, uh, they thought that they could get Ukraine all in one go, and they thought, to a degree, like I did back in January, that the Europeans and the Americans were not going to stick up for Ukraine. Mm. And I, just like they, miscalculated. Interesting. Well,
0: maybe I wonder if you don't miscalculate much, but maybe it's because uh, we we needed another war. We're out of we're out of Iraq. We're out of mm. Afghanistan. What are we going to do? We have a lot of. Uh, Defense industry. Uh, I don't.
1: Th- I don't know anyone in the army who's like, "Oh yeah, let's go back to work."
0: Oh, not not the army. <laughs> I'm talking more the yeah. politicians. And like, I wonder if we were still yeah. it, still in Iraq and Afghanistan, in those same numbers. What would, would 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 our support for Ukraine look different if we were still? Oh yeah, uh, that's, because that's what I mean. we were
1: dependent upon the Russians to supply our forces in Afghanistan. Mm. So I mean, we would have had we would have had a risk of having our entire military force in Afghanistan gutted.
0: Well, cause we were coming through the stands. We we're coming through K2 yeah. and yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That's wild. Yeah. I think it would look different. I'm curious what it would look like if we were at the, uh, the height of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We have some examples of that, a couple of different examples of the incursions that you just talked about with Russia when we were in Iraq and Afghanistan and they barely even, they were really a blip on our radar. It seemed like yeah. anyway, uh, certainly not front page for more than a, more than a day. Um, yeah I
1: mean if there was a time to stop the Russians from this process and try to force them into negotiations over a non-soviet future in which we all you know get along if that's the right phrase the time was 2004 because that was when the Russians invaded Georgia and Georgia was a country that was attempting to westernize attempting to get rid of corruption attempting to join the EU and because we were involved in Iraq we had absolutely no diplomatic and especially military bandwidth so yeah. the Russians invaded Georgia while Putin was in a box at the Olympics with George Bush to underline that there was nothing that he could do. Wow.
0: And I didn't know that he's at the Olympics. That's amazing. Um, yeah. But yeah, it seems like if we're distracted elsewhere. We pay very little attention to some of these other uh, things going on that people can't right. really find. Especially and we have,
1: we have something we haven't had in the United States now in 20 years, we have dry powder.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. Got to use it. See, that's what I mean.
1: Uh, uh, the the point of dry powder is not to use it. The point of dry, of dry powder is you you have the because you got to replenish it. You got to replenish it. it. Yeah, you know. I mean it's it's been it's been four years now since we did the the withdrawal from Iraq, and so we now have an army that is rested and recouped and has had a chance to retrain and reequip and uh, and build out its numbers again. It's capable. I don't think anybody in the military doubts that. But political support in the United States for any sort of ground war, that's going to take another decade. And that's not going to be in Ukraine. No, no. I'm Unless something significant shifts in the strategic picture. So if Ukraine collapses this year, uh, we will have forces in Poland and we will be at a very high risk of a nuclear exchange with the Russians. That's one of the reasons why we're trying so hard to support the Ukrainians so that that doesn't happen. That we aren't put into that position.
0: Because there's no there's no buffer anymore. Uh, no buffer
1: states. And and we now know that the Russians are so militarily incompetent that in a face to face fight with NATO, they would be obliterated. And so the only tool that they would have are nukes. And the Russians feel rightly that if they can't get to that crystal defense again, their demographic decline is so steep that they'll cease to exist in 20 years. And they're right. Mm -hmm. So for the Russians, they're all in. And that means every tool is on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Wild.
0: Uh, well, shifting gears, I want to ask you what your thoughts are on the uh, the AI side of the house, artificial intelligence and quantum computing and chat GPT mm-hmm. and uh, all that stuff that uh, has been in the news recently. Mm-hmm. What's uh, what are your thoughts on? That? I mean, you for I mean, it's coming. It's been coming. We foresaw it in all sorts of uh, all sorts <laughs> of uh, science fiction novels and movies. So what do you think? Well, Let's let give you three things here.
1: So uh, first of all, um, there are two types of AI. You've got applied AI, which is what we use in say automation and programming, where you have a very complex decision tree. And if anything falls out of that decision tree, the whole thing uh, falls apart. So that's a programming issue. That's um, applied mechanics, applied intelligence, if you want to call it that, but it's really more accurately thought of as machine learning. Okay, And it requires a lot of people one of the reasons the Chinese are pretty decent at this space is they have a lot of people, hmm. and so when you throw a lot of folks who earn only fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year at a problem like this, you can do a lot of programming. Hmm. General AI, machines that can think, machines that can operate independently. This is not. This is like getting into like um, automated driving, for example. Which you don't uh, like, right? Is, is
0: that is that? Are you uh, not, you don't have
1: a Tesla? I, I, well, that's an EV. Oh. EV and AV two different things. Okay. We can talk about EVs later. So you can do an automatic driving with a conventional vehicle. Uh it's more common with electric be- just because you already have the computers in there. So you're driving a computer uh, essentially, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh it's just it, it's more common with electric vehicles certainly because you, you it's a different power load. Uh whereas a, a an internal combustion engine is going to be, you know, diesel or gasoline driven, it just doesn't generate nearly as much electricity. It it can be modified to be an AV, but it, it's not It's more of a conversion than you can do for an EV. Okay. Uh, Anyway, applied intelligence. um, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. General AI, general intelligence. We don't have that yet. We're not close. We're not within 30 years. Doesn't mean it can't happen. It's just not gonna happen soon. Ah. So lots and lots and lots and lots of human programming to establish this decision tree that the machine then tries to follow. But it's not very good at doing things like recognizing stuff on the shoulders. So, for example, uh, the the way it was explained to me, I think most effectively, is if you've got a stop sign on a road, an EV or an AV car will see that and it will stop. But what if the stop sign is on the side of the building and it's part of a marketing campaign?
0: Mm. Can't
1: It's like like driving by the building and it just stops (laughs) because that's the context that it knows it in. Uh, so decisions that a three-year-old is capable of making, AI today can't make. Mm-hmm. So if it involves math and physical processes and crunching, no problem, it's great. But if it requires decision making, not so much. Uh, so that, that's your first issue. Yeah. Your your second issue is that true AI, especially general AI, but to a degree even the applied stuff, that requires those chips that are four nanometer or ten nanometers or smaller. Really, the four nanometer types are the ones you need. And if anything goes wrong with the international trading system, those just go away Mm. for a decade. And we're going to see that happen in the next year or two. So it's not that this is a dead sector. It's not that there's no potential. But the hype has gotten ahead of where our capabilities are. Mm. And the hype has gotten way ahead of what our material constraints are.
0: Interesting. So what does what chat GPT fall on this? Is it, uh, is it more like, Hey, the high school kid, college kids going to have their paper written for them by something and say, Hey, write this in my, well, so it sounds like me. And because this chat GPT stuff, I think I haven't played around with it much. I've been writing, so I haven't had a chance. Um, sure. I intended, I can relate. But, <laughs> but, uh, like it can go, you, I think you give it access to, or you can give it access to all of your stuff on your computer so it is now kind of learning can learn how to talk like you essentially and maybe for for a a, what there? is
1: basically an alpha test it is remarkably sophisticated i mean I, there aren't a lot of people out there if you put a chat gpt paper in front of them they're going to think that a human wrote it mm-hmm. but for a first generation it's really good so i would expect that to come a lot further along now one of the things to remember about gpt in any sort of um internet-based ai system that's based on a server that doesn't have to worry about the mechanics of movement, mm. and that means you can do things with that on at scale that you can't do with some of these other applications that people are really excited about. So that is definitely a technology to keep an eye on. The
0: Chat GPT. I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess around with it a little bit. Somebody sent me something. They said write the next chapter in Jack Carr's book, um, sounding like Jack Carr, and they sent it to me. And it well, it wasn't great, but it was. I mean, but, yeah. it, but it was. It made, it For something that not, came out of 40 keystrokes, yeah, pretty good. Not, Yeah, exactly. Like it was on the right track. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was really, really interesting. So I'm, I might play around with that uh, a little bit going forward here and just see how it Yeah, I typed
1: in, make tell me what it. Peter Zion thinks about Bitcoin. And wow, I swear a lot when AI does it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dye, what do you think about Bitcoin? What's going on with, uh, oh, with, God, with Bitcoin? Oh, no, God, I should have
1: brought it up. Yeah. I'm so sorry. You did, okay, though. You did all kinds of hate mail. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, my God. What was I thinking? Are you an investor?
0: Uh, were, you, were you in a, no, uh, FTX? No. You're down in the Bahamas, um,
1: I, 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 I'm of the general view that uh, not all of Bitcoin is fraud, some of it's just a pyramid scheme. Right. Uh, I, I there is no use case, I think this is going to be kind of like uh Betamax, um, a few years from now that people will look back on it and just you know, why, why, why did we ever think that was a good idea?
0: <sighs> Betamax had better quality than VHS, I think, back in the day. Okay,
1: then... let's go with Beanie Babies. How about that? <laughs>
0: Oh man. So uh so you're not an investor in, in uh in cryptocurrencies?
1: No. No. I mean the blockchain that's behind it is really interesting and I mm. think it's gonna revolutionize a number of sectors, but it's really hard to invest in the blockchain. Mm. It's because it's a it's a digital technology as opposed to a product. Mm.
0: Speaking of products though, um EVs. So I know you're not a, oh, a, yeah, a sure. fan. What uh so so what's um what's going on with, with EVs and why aren't you a fan? I think I know, but uh maybe let everybody else know.
1: <laughs> so, two problems. Uh, number one, uh, most EVs in most places are not green at all. Uh, the The places that we have chosen to do the processing and the way we do the processing is very soft coal intensive, and so the energy intensity to generate one of these things in the first place is an order of magnitude more than a normal car.
0: Is it, so, so the battery if you're, you're talking about the lithium or the what? What is it's
1: the, primarily it's but the one. lithium, but not just the lithium. So, like the frame is a. Um, an alloy of silicon and aluminum. And most of this stuff is processed in China with coal. With silicon, you basically bake it with coal until everything that's not silicon boils away. And aluminum is the most energy intensive metal that humans create. And again, Mm -hmm. it's processed with coal power in China. Uh, And so if you're looking at like the, the Tesna, Tesla uh, propaganda, they basically claim that their cars are made with 100% green tech, and that doesn't happen anywhere in the world. It's almost exclusively coal. Uh, Second, uh, we're going to have a material shortage. Uh, For us to do the green transition in a way that we're talking about with the technologies that we know, solar, wind, EVs, and so on, we need three times as much copper and 10 times as much nickel and 18 times as much graphite and on and on and on and on. And humanity has never in 6,000 years doubled the amount of any industrial material that we already had in use, Mm. um, ever. And we're going to do this now for 12 different materials, and we're going to do it without Russia, and we're going to do it without China. Bullshit. So we need to look within the constraints of what we actually have and might be able to build out in the next 10 and 20 years. And then we need to take a really hard look, not just at the economic footprint, but the carbon footprint of the technologies in question. And we're going to have to do something we really don't like to do in this country, make some choices and putting solar where it's sunny, slam dunk, do that. (laughs) Putting wind where it's windy, slam dunk, do that. With EVs, maybe some fleet vehicles in communities where it's sunny or windy. So Phoenix, sure. Denver, sure. Mm. You drive an EV and you put up solar panels in New York, you have increased your carbon footprint with those choices. And since we're not going to have enough materials to do this at scale anyway, we're going to have to choose where to put this stuff. Now, the environmental movement is moving in this direction. And I I actually have to say I'm a little impressed because they're not a group that is known for making long-term math-based decisions. What's going on in Europe right now is because the natural gas from the russians going into germany has basically gone to zero they're discovering that their solar and their wind system are not all that it's cracked up to be because germany is a very non-windy non-sunny country and they've had to plug the gap with soft coal lignite and so it's now about half of their electricity generation don't look at german stats the germans lie about their stats they um they go by power used not by power generated Uh So when the sun comes up in the morning, they count all of their green power, but a lignite power plant takes more than a day to spin up and down, and they need it for the night, but that, that means they also have to leave it running for the day. So they don't count what happens during the day, even though it's more than the sun. Uh, anyway, so if you look at it from a more non-Enron, more mm-hmm. honest approach, uh, they're getting about half of their power from coal now, making it one of the dirtier economies out there. So the the German greens. And the California Greens, two geographies that have relatively similar policies when it comes to adopting green tech. Mm. They're having a conversation about the numbers. The Californians have spent about one third as much in putting up green tech, but they get five times as much electricity because it's actually sunny in California. And the conversation of why it's working in one place and Another, you know, this conversation, you know, it has an easy answer, basic geography. Mm. And they should have had this conversation 15 years ago, but they're having it now. (laughs) And as it it becomes obvious that we're not going to have as much zinc and lithium and the rest, we're going to have to choose where this stuff goes. And it's not going to go in Germany.
0: Man. And I know, so we're creeping up on an hour. I know you usually have something to jump uh, onto because you are a busy mm-hmm. guy. Um, but uh, really quick about, so national security space, what do we outsource to, uh, let's say, ideological enemies uh, that might turn into actual physical adversarial enemies? Uh, what have we outsourced that is, uh, that is dangerous that we can't pull back immediately? And why did we do that? or have we done that? Sure. Well, yeah. let's
1: start with the Russians. Um, the Russians are a major exporter of any number of energy, food, and industrial commodities. They were an exporter of none of them except for oil, if you go back to 1992. So they're they're now the top or second or third top producer for coal, for oil, for natural gas, for palladium, for platinum, uh, for wheat, for fertilizer, and and on and on and on. And they, they were number three for oil 30 years ago, And part of the post-Cold War globalization era is bringing in parts of the system that had not been part of it before. Russia makes that list. The single biggest vulnerability the United States has from the Russians is palladium, because you use that in every single semiconductor, and they are 40% of the global total. We cannot have chips in volume without the Russians. There's just no way around that. Uh, we will, we will work on being better with efficiency and that'll help, but we're still looking at us needing to reduce global output of chips by at least a third because of that one thing. Okay. Uh, China is much more significant. China came in basically at the same time as the Russians, but instead of being in raw commodities, they do process commodities and manufacturing. So we need to relocate the entire electronics manufacturing base. That will be hard, uh, to do electronics manufacturing, you need a differentiated labor force because the person who does them die cast, does not do the wiring, does not do the coatings, does not do the programming, mm-hmm. does not do the camera, does not do the lenses, does not do the motherboard and so on. Each of those is a different labor force. Mm-hmm. And you've got a dozen different labor forces in the East Asian rim that have been able to trade peaceably for the last few decades. And that's where electronics goes. We can partially recreate that ecosystem with Colombia and Mexico, but it's not going to be on the same scale and it's going to cost more. Uh, The biggest problem is shorter term, and that is materials processing. So China is the world's processor, not just for steel and aluminum, but for lithium and copper and Mm. cobalt and molybdenum and, and all the rest. And none of this is difficult. Most of it's 1940s or earlier technology. A lot of it's not even expensive. And the United States is the cheapest energy in the world because we've got great wind, great solar, and the shale revolution. So it's not that we can't do it. It's just that the whole kit and caboodle has to be relocated before we can consider anything else. Because if you can't get the raw materials, it doesn't matter if you got the electronic supply chain system set up. So we need to rebuild that. The Gulf Coast is the logical choice because that's where the cheapest energy is and the most what's a non-biased way to say this the least discriminating development policies Mm. where they're fine with heavy industry are in the gulf coast Mm. uh that's where i would expect most of this to go but we've got to make the decision to build that facilities those facilities and once we pull the trigger it's still going to be a minimum of two years before it's all moved
0: And so is this next decade um, for us, for the United States, very, very telling with a lot of a lot of bumps to come out on the other side? What is this next? 10 years, and does it take uh, people in, well, bureaucrats, elected officials, uh, maybe uh, senior level military officers, the citizens to be a little bit more informed um, about what's going on and make longer term uh, decisions based on logic? Uh, Like, what are we looking at here? Logic, And and can we do that? And (laughs) and are we even capable of doing that anymore? Oh, and before we do that, I'm going to let you go here in one second, but (laughs) I wanted to ask you, um, gosh. Think back to 1975, 85, 95. Do you think we were happier as a country without social media and all this division that it allows, uh, whether it's intentional (laughs) or not, because it can be weaponized or you can just weaponize it yourself uh, without any outside entity trying to do it or a political party trying to do it to galvanize a base. You can just, it just seems to naturally bring out a lot of the worst in people. And it was meant to bring together, but it seems to have done the opposite. Uh, How does that, how does social media weaponization of, or just it existing uh, play into this next 10 years? And can it help us get to where we need to go or is it going to be a detriment?
1: This isn't the first time that the information dissemination business has become liberalized and democratized. Uh, And every time it becomes easier to move information, you go through an adjustment period that can be regime shaking. Hmm. So in the 1970s and early eighties, the big technology with information was the fax machine. And what that did is it broke down the government contracting structure and freed up private enterprise. Now we look back on that as a plus, but I think a lot of people who were in business at that time, remember how uh, cutthroat the competition was. And if, in movies, the the idea of the excess of the '80s that was a direct outcome of the freeing of private enterprise because they could control their own information thrills. Uh, we did the same thing in the 1890s with the telegraph, uh, that brought us yellow journalism, which feels a lot like social media today. That contributed to the Spanish American War, so we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't underestimate the threats of what misinformation can do. But in both of those cases, culture in the United States was able to adapt and use the technologies to expand the economy, and make for a more stable society. We just first had to deal with things like libel laws. And so what we what we need, if that's the right word, is for Congress to step in and actually put in a regulation structure for social media and the internet that is more appropriate to the way the technologies are involved in them. I mean, this isn't 1996 anymore. The Telecommunications Act of 96 is what said that anyone who hosted any information on the internet was not criminally liable for anything that was there unless it involved child porn. We need something like that to be expanded to be involve general misinformation, and if we do that, people like Vladimir Putin and Emanjat of Iran and Corey Bush of the Democrats, and Major Tyler Green of the Republicans, will just go away. Mm, That's interesting.
0: So I th- think I, we had a uh, a point other than the. I, I look back to the Civil War for hope. It sounds strange, but uh, that is the, strange. In the aftermath of the Civil War, I mean, we fought this war where. Uh, numbers of Americans who died uh, exceed any other war we've ever been in. And somehow afterward, we came back together. Um, so I look at this time and all this distrust in government. Um, I look at all the, uh, the weaponization of social media and everything else and just having these two sides. And it's my side, your side. It's, it, I look back to the Civil War and so we came out of that where we actually fought a war. Uh, here we're just squabbling and everybody's, you know, can, can say whatever they want, anytime they want. And then regret it a few minutes later or the day later and try to delete it. Whatever. that's different than actually fighting a war and killing your neighbor. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I can build
1: on that. So I mean, two things, number one, we're nowhere close to a civil war. And unlike in the civil war where there was a very clear regional delimiter north south, we don't have that anymore. We're, we're much more integrated, not just uh state to state, but within states. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we, we're not capable of that sort of conflict. Uh, and then number two one of the things that i saw in the midterms was uh i spoke to a political analyst yesterday and he outlined some really interesting things for me uh independents, as a rule really don't like biden especially his economic programs but they decisively voted for him in the midterms and the democrats because the information and the whack or the misinformation and the wacko candidates that trump came up with so alienated the moderates That they didn't just show up to a midterm, which almost never happens. They showed up in force to vote for a guy they didn't care for. Mm. Uh, And if the moderates in this country are motivated for a midterm, you can imagine how many are going to show up for a general. Mm. So the the challenge for the Democrats and the Republicans up and down the ticket is to nominate the least crazy people because (laughs) the moderates have finally been roused.
0: Do you think we're drawing the right kind of people to politics? That's a whole nother question. Why well, would you we have-
1: haven't for the last 5 years. I'm going to reserve judgment for the next 2 because it hasn't do happened that? yet.
0: Like I just Oh my gosh, put your, uh,
1: Well, the, the problem's the primary system. Both in the Democrats and the Republicans, you've got a primary system that encourages people to play to the base rather than to play to the middle, and that means we with, combined with gerrymandering we get more and more wackadoo candidates. Now, we've been here before. I think we talked about this last time, the political reorganization that's going on happens every generation or two, and the factions move around. But at the point when the factions are moving around, everything is game. And the fact that we've got uh, social media at the same time, that's just bad luck. So right now, (laughs) the voices from the extremes are very loud. But even if you take the extreme on the left and the extreme on the right, you're still talking less than a fifth of the American population, probably less than a tenth. Uh, And again, now that the moderates are actually feel they've got some skin in the game for the first time in decades, Mm. I think this is going to go a lot more constructively than we might fear. Interesting.
0: How about some of those people that are drawn to politics because they see it as a way to get wealthy? You go in and make one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, and then ten years later, you come out with ten million dollars or whatever it is. Uh, They're very astute investors, it seems. A lot of these people.
1: The the, the money doesn't come from your salary. The money comes from what you do on the back end. So, like you go open a consulting firm, or you go on the speaking circuit. The
0: consulting firms with family members and and all the rest of it uh, seems it's quite lucrative. I don't know if that's the right reason to go in to politics.
1: Uh, I would agree it's not the best reason. Um, I like the way it used to be where we'd have citizens who would come in from various fields uh, and, you know, serve for a term or four or whatever, and then go out. Um, But since we haven't had that political reshuffling in the United States since the 30s, we have a lot of lawyers and lawyers see personal recompense from, from a different point of view. Oh yeah. I put that in uh, this last book as well. The one that coming out here in May.
0: <laughs> all right, boy. I, I, I can't I wait you... <laughs> to <just> read it. <laughs> I'll, well, uh, yeah, I'll let you go, but, uh, the end of the world is just the beginning. It is out now. Everybody should get it. It came out last June. Um, but all the other books too. I mean, and for gosh, for high school kids, just read these. You know what I mean? Like like take a week off of school and read these. It'll do more good than sitting in that classroom, I'm sure. Um, gosh. Uh, what's What are you working on now? Is there another book in the works? Or what are you, uh, are you taking a breath and doing your consulting? I, I, what are you doing?
1: Take, I'm taking a breath right now. I gave 179 presentations last year, so maybe I'm not taking a breath. But I haven't had a lot of time to write. No. Um, there, I am noodling over a number five, uh, but TBD.
0: Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Man. Thank you so much for spending some time today. I sincerely appreciate it. Uh, And one more thing. I just want to end end, end, uh, on a little bit of hope. Sure. So you are hopeful, but you're just, we're just going to, we're going to take some, we're going to take some hits over this next decade, but we're going to come out the other side stronger for it. Is that how you look at it? I don't,
1: I mean, think about what these hits are. We need to double the size of the industrial plant in order to build things here. That's a good story. That's not a hit. The hit is when China breaks down, we might not have some of the stuff we're used to for a while. So we'll be motivated to build it our damn selves. Mm. This this is good. Okay. Uh, It doesn't mean that it's risk free. Anytime we have significant change in the international environment, there is risk. But the American political system, the American population doesn't have an interest in a ground war. And there are too many countries that are hostile to the United States that are dependent upon the United States. Russia and China are two of the countries most dependent on international trade. So, honestly, if we really want to break them, all we got to do is go home. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. All right,
0: man. Thank you so much for being out there. I love your perspective. It's always a little bit different than uh, than most people's because um, you put a lot of thought into this. You've obviously dedicated your entire life to being able to build a foundation, so you can put that kind of deep thought into these things. So, uh, thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate it. Thank you for the books and for all the ideas that you uh, that you give me. Um, <laughs> I go back and I revisit them uh, constantly. So it's uh, everybody go out and get these books. I I, uh, I highly recommend them. We'd be uh, a more informed country if everybody read these. So, uh, uh, one miracle at a time. Thank you, my friend.
1: All right, take care, Jack. Awesome,
0: take care. Bye. Awesome, thank you so much. All right, Navy Federal Credit Union. Those dreaded finances. Managing your money can be hard. they are competing goals: growing savings, paying debt, managing everyday and unexpected expenses plus a little having fun. Navy Federal Credit Union takes the legwork out of saving and investing with a variety of choices. Want to supersize your savings earnings? They're offering some of their highest rates in 10 years. And whether you choose savings or investments, you can make it easier by automating. Plus, their website has articles, tips, and tools that make complicated subjects easier to understand. I've been a member since 1996, my first year in the Navy. For those watching, you can see my Navy Federal Credit Union cue card right there. And they have been awesome to me and my family over all these years. So check out Navy Federal's supercharged rates at navyfederal.org slash save and invest. Saving products insured by NCUA. Investment options are available through Navy Federal Investment Services, and are not insured by NCUA. Check them out, NavyFederal.org. Let's talk about Aimpoint. Proven, reliable, trusted. The original red dot since 1975. Originally developed for hunting purposes, their sights were adopted by the U.S. Army in 1997. I've been using them for over 20 years now. Absolutely love AimPoint. If you go to my Instagram, Jack Carr USA, you can scroll down and see a few pictures of me running an AimPoint in Afghanistan in the early days. What I want to talk about right now is the Acro P2. Right here, look at this thing. That is solid. So, AimPoint revolutionized red dot pistol optics with the Acro P1. Now, the Acro P2 represents the next generation of pistol mounted optics. It features a brighter, more efficient led emitter coupled with a higher capacity battery to provide over five years of constant on use. That's right. Over five years. It's designed to withstand shock vibration and extreme temperatures. This thing is solid. Absolutely love it. I'm going to get a few of these things and I love it so much. It is in my upcoming novel only dead. So I have big plans for this. Awesome. Also want to mention the Comp M5 M5S right here. So this thing is awesome. And what I really love about this is that it has a triple A battery. So you can find triple A's pretty much anywhere. So that is a huge advantage in my opinion on this right here. It features battle proven Aimpoint Comp series now in a lightweight compact model. Takes that triple A battery, and that resolves a lot of travel restriction issues, and it's compatible with Aimpoint 3x and 6x magnifiers, one of which I have right there, and all generations of night vision devices, and is compatible with multiple mounting solutions. Just awesome. Finally, the Comp M4 M4S. It features professional quality red dot optic for use under extremely harsh Conditions. The U.S. Army has chosen a member of the Aimpoint Comp M4 series of sights as their M68CCO, close combat optic, for over two decades. It's powered by a single AA battery for over 80,000 hours, eight years of continuous use, and over 500,000 hours in the night vision setting. It's compatible with Aimpoint 3x magnifiers and all generations night vision during the month of march receive a free signed copy of the devil's hand in hardcover with your purchase of any aimpoint comp series or micro t2 optic visit aimpoint.info slash jack car and use code jackcar. car j-a-c-k-c-a-r-r check them out Today's episode is also brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Grab a can of Black Rifle coffees ready to drink, the perfect balance of quality and convenience. If you want a Spartan-level caffeine kick, try Ready to Drink 300. Available in salted caramel, vanilla bomb, and more. Made with an electrifying blend of MCT oil and amino acids, Ready to Drink 300 packs a caffeine punch that'll supercharge your day. Ready to drink is perfect if you need your coffee quick. And shopping with Black Rifle Coffee helps give back to the veterans and first responders who serve our nation. You can stock up on cans at blackriflecoffee.com or grab an ice cold can at a convenience store near you. You can stock up at blackriflecoffee.com slash danger close and use code DANGERClose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order blackrafflecoffeecom dot slash danger close for 20% off. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the danger close podcast. First off, thank you to badass workbench for this incredible desk. This thing is so solid. I absolutely love it. Check them out. Badass workbench.com. And thank you guys. This is amazing. All right. First up headlamps. If you know me, you know I'm a big headlamp fan. Can't have too many of these things. This is a variation of one of their originals from Petzl right here. When I found out they were discontinuing this model, I bought a ton of these. Uh, But I just made the transition this last year to their new ones because I'm kindly running out of those. And I actually really like it. So everybody at Christmas got these in their stockings in this household. We have them scattered in the cars, in drawers, in backpacks. Can't have too many headlamps as far as I'm concerned so that is the Petzl and uh, really liking that new one right there All right, Black Rifle Coffee fueling me up with the Espresso 300 Triple Shot (whistles) as I work on this novel coming out in May, Only the Dead this has been fueling me so Black Rifle Coffee Company, thank you guys and if you go to officialjackcar.com you can get a Yeti mug just like this and a bunch of other cool stuff on there as well so check that out SIG. All right. This is the P210 target right here. So there's a lot of history to this pistol and it is awesome. If you have not fired one of these, you should. And you can check out the Vickers guide. Also, they have a SIG book that is amazing. Incredible pictures. Hard to find. I don't think you can get them anymore, but they might be doing a reprint, but ton of history here with this P210. It's beautiful and it shoots like a dream. Absolutely love this. So SIG... Thank you guys so much. Oh, also on that uh, website, officialjackcar.com. Look at that right there. Ooh, that looks familiar, doesn't it? Yep, that's right. Land Cruiser FJ62, and uh, those are on there as well. Protect Uh, my buddy Nick Norris. He's just on the podcast recently. We had an amazing conversation. Uh, Incredible guy. What a story. But he started this, and it's P-R-O-T-E-K-T, Dot com. This is their hydration liquid formula right here. So I have that every day. And then when I need the boost, energy liquid formula right here. But it's all about clean energy and optimizing performance in life. So Nick, thank you so much. And for everything you guys are doing out there at Protect. Awesome. Headhunter blades. Oh, Harley Elmore right here. This is the rat. And I think I've talked about this before, but this is just a sweet blade so check them out incredible history behind this blade as well Um, and you can find some of that history online so check them out headhunterblades.com and this one came with the trainer because training obviously is vastly important Uh, so if you're going to have a pistol carry the blade uh, tourniquet all those things uh, get the training so bam that is very cool thank you guys so much and moving on aim points the acro right here i have big plans for this acro and so this is a pistol mounted uh red dot sight check that thing out but it's fully enclosed and that means it is tough right here this thing can withstand some abuse uh check out Warhog tactical they do a whole uh on this couple of videos on their youtube channel so go check out that rick hogg over there um former army special operations guy and done the podcast as well so in point thank you so much i'm gonna get a few more of these big plans all right right here bubba ropes.com uh bubba Offroad recovery gear this is our snatch strap and uh yeah Living up here in the mountains, they call it the Power Stretch Recovery Rope. And this one's fairly robust, but they have all types of different recovery ropes on there. So go check them out. Bubba gear right here. Um, So in our vehicles up here, we have toe straps. We have the snatch straps, shovels, uh, max tracks, all the things you need living up here in the mountains to pull yourself out. So you can self-rescue or help out your neighbor. So uh, check them out right there, BubbaRopes.com. And all right. Magpul. Look at this. This is awesome. So this is the DACA grid organizer. It fits in, I'm sure, a bunch of different cases, but in this case, it is the vault, this large vault from Pelican, and this allows you to arrange these to organize whatever you have in there. So you can see this picture right here. That's how they have the rifle set up. So I'm going to be playing around with this. What a fantastic idea because you're not cutting out the... uh, uh, Pelican case foam, you can move this around and get your weapon system all set up in there and customize it. So check it out DACA Grid Organizer from Magpul. And I think that is it. Thank you so much. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironcloud original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My next novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves this May and is available for pre order right now. To find out more about my guest, Peter Zihan, go to Zihan on Politics, and that is Z-E-I-H-A-N.com. You can link to his social channels from there, and be sure to pick up his books, Disunited Nations, Accidental Superpower, Absent Superpower, and his latest, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr, USA, That is the website. You can go click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And until the next time, take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.